0: Greetings and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome a true renaissance man of indie cinema. One glance at his resume reveals that he's worn many hats across his career, from makeup to editor to cinematographer of many notable projects for some of the genre's most prestigious names. As a filmmaker, he's been a writer and director behind such projects as Earthling, Wuss, and the acclaimed festival hit Slash. Please welcome to the show, Clay Liferd. That's the
1: best intro I've ever had. Thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you for (laughs) being here. I love it. I'm so glad that you're here and able to join us. You're in from Texas right now.
1: I am. I live in Austin, Texas.
0: Well, I'm glad that we managed to snag you while you were in town to uh, bring you into our dark lair. I love it. This is great. Fluorescent lair, though it may be. (laughs) (laughs) Well, why don't we kick off the show the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is simply this. Uh, Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want, what's your personal relationship with the Genre? Why do you think the genre appeals to people? But why horror?
1: Well, um, it actually is like one of my first memories because my mother. Uh, we can we can make it we can make an argument about her parenting skills, but uh, my mom is a huge horror fan, and my first theatrical experience when I was three. This will date me was a alien and its original run in the theater. Uh, and I remember it like I remember part of it. But the weird thing is, it's like, you know, you forget like kids, what, what scares adults and what scares kids are very, very different. Sure. For me as a kid, it was like being in like, the thought of a crowd at a low angle or like being separated from your parents or just loud noises. So actually, Alien wasn't that scary. I do remember a couple of years later, standing in line, making my mom stand in line for like hours to see the first one of Empire Strikes Back in the Texas summer heat. And then we got in and the first five minutes, Wampa, super loud, comes up and I'm like, I want to go home. And she's like, we're not going home. We just (laughs) stood in this line for like three hours. But I chilled out by the time Yoda came around. So I was all good. But uh, no, um, my I kind of was raised. On horror like my fondest childhood memories are like going to a matinee when I should have been in school like after I go into a doctor my mom taking me to a matinee to see Return of the Living Dead uh in the theater and we were like the only two people in the theater and like fun stuff like that so my mom I owe her that and you know I think I turned out okay but I don't know maybe that's uh now that I am a parent um <laughs> I don't I'm not necessarily holding the kids to the same standard yet it's it's kind of a. Uh, I I feel like We've had the discussions about like when, yeah, because my daughter wants to see the thing really badly, right? right? And she's eight. Uh, and I, yeah, I personally think that's okay, but um, like I, uh, you know,
0: now I, I just love the idea that you saw Return of the Living Dead with your mom. Because I instantly flashed to the scene of Linnea Quigley yes. ripping open her shirt on top of a grave. And, uh, you yeah, know, my mom's pretty liberal. I'm sure she's probably listening right now somewhere. Uh, and uh, we've seen some crazy stuff together, but like, the idea of watching that movie as like a teenager with your mom in the theater is kind of amazing. That
1: one was pretty quick. The one, the one that was unexpected that really got me, and it's actually my memory. I was like, "Oh my god, why would this be this? Like, why is this in this movie?" So I went to see Hardware in the theater. Richard Stanley's Hardware. Oh yeah. And I swear to God, I, I maybe it was an alternate version of it or an alternate dimension where the cuts longer with the sex scene mm-hmm. with Stacy Travis and uh, Dylan McDermott. Like after they had like the she comes back from the war and or whatever he's doing. He's got the, like the robot hand and they have this like really long, like and kind of explicit. I feel like that's the first time not to get too explicit that I saw like an on top sex scene. Uh, <laughs> and then I was like, I'm going to go um, excuse myself. So I went in the lobby and I played like Tempest. I played like two quarters. I come back and I swear to God, it's still going. <laughs> but then I like years later picked up the Blu-ray and it's like that sex scene is not that long. But I do like remember pacing in the lobby, like playing a video game, coming back and like, it's still going. And I had to like step back out again. So I'm like maybe like time warped, uh, all, or uh, maybe there was a different cut. Maybe I yeah I don't know. You know Texas they test movies in Texas. I don't know if you know this, but uh, there was a the Walnut Twin Theater, which is like really close to where I grew up, was the first place where Spielberg because he he was always about testing in middle America, middle America, right. And that's the first time Jaws ever played in front of an audience. First time Raiders ever played in front of an audience. Like most of his movies, and he would go and hang out in the back, and like no one knew he was there. But they would do these like kind of like audience, like unofficial, like not with like comment cards, but like test screens just for reactions. And that was kind of legendary for that. And that theater is sadly gone now. I think it's a men's warehouse now, but I dig the idea
0: that Texas was definitely a testing ground for some of cinema's best, because when you think about it, uh, when you're in the industry whether it's New York or LA we're it's just sort of our, our culture here
1: well it's myopic and you're in a bubble yeah. right
0: so of course test screenings need to to go elsewhere when i was in college in ohio i remember we would frequently get uh test screenings of movies like uh whatever the new arnold schwarzenegger film was they would they would bring it yeah. and you have to like do comment cards and uh it was always very exciting like to me it was just like oh my gosh i get to see this before every I would
1: have killed to do that fight, Commando, man. That would have been.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I wasn't in college when Commando came out. I, I had to deal with some of the later, later Schwarzeneggers. Best uh, action hero. No, that would have been <laughs> after.
1: Actually, though, I will tell. you, did something that's popped in mind about the embarrassing thing with my mom. My mom. Um, I don't know if this has happened. Like, because my mom, as she got older, and we go see movies together. Still, it's like. She would hear everything perfectly unless someone said something vile. If somebody said something about like, you know, sexual nature, like maybe, maybe to another character about what they wanted to do to them, you know, with their body parts in in the sack. My mom would be like, what did he just say? And I'm like, I'd have to be like, oh, I, I didn't hear it either. Or I'd be like, oh, he just said he likes her. <laughs> um, but every time it's like she'd hear everything else perfectly fine. And think I would just be like, I want to put my penis all over you or whatever somebody says. And then she's like, what did he just say? And I was like, oh, God, seriously? <laughs> oh, my God, I love it. Uh, you know, you did bring up
0: something that I w- was thinking about while you were talking about the alternative cuts of movies. And I think it, it is a phenomenon that's very specific to uh, the cable generation and the VHS generation. Oh, yeah. That uh, viewers today don't necessarily quite know or understand is that for a lot of us, Some of the versions of popular movies that we saw that aired on TV or that aired, uh, you know, internationally or whatever are completely different from the version that like is now (laughs) the archive version. Like Halloween 2 is a prime example of a movie that used to play on cable. And when I say that it wasn't just edited for television, but it was a completely different cut using different shots, different like angles and everything. And, and, And Scream Factory, I think, finally archived the TV.
1: Because a lot of the movies, they were so sh- they were so they they had to cut out so much material that they would put in deleted scenes just to get it back up to feature length. Right. So there would be, like, movie There were, like, a significant amount. I think RoboCop had some really, like, it's one of the more legendary of the edited-for-television versions with the dialogue ch- changes, like, and...
0: Well, it's weird. And, like, in a film buff sort of way, it's sort of like a drug. Like, if it's the first time you ever saw it, like, you're always kind of chasing that dragon, I guess. Because <laughs> right. whenever I think of Army of Darkness, for example, the first cut of Army of Darkness that I ever saw, Saw. The opening had like a narrator and they showed the portal over the Delta 88, oh, right, like sucking right. it into space. And it was this whole thing. And the movie doesn't open like that. Like not now, not the, the version that's theatrical or VHS. But that was a TV cut that I saw. And to me, that's like this forbidden version of the movie that I saw at like 2 a.m. on Stars or something that no longer... Exists or, it, but I, I know that's the version that I saw because it, other people on the internet have yeah. corroborated it. It's well,
1: you, you also don't get the fun things like because uh, I grew up with Night Flight and uh, love Night, and Flight. Night Flight was so, and it's actually back on the internet now. But um, Night Flight was so amazing because there would just be like such a weird psychedelic mix of like you know like you watch a David Byrne concert and it would be some like. This is the first time I ever saw a lot of his lost uh animated film. The guy who did, you know, the mascot being the most famous one. He's a stop motion animator who did all the stop motion himself, and like his wife and his daughter helped out. But he did that amazing um, story where it's like the little dog who I found out the little dog's name is Duffy. Mm-hmm. And Duffy's like on a quest to go, and he's the cutest, most of his eyes are so expressive, and it's all stop motion, but it interacts with real people too. And he's right. on this quest to get an orange for his his master, who's a little girl, who's the director's daughter. And he ends up being, uh, he ends up getting an orange, but on his way back, he's tempted by the devil who's throwing a ball. And with all these other crazy creatures in there, and he gets invited to the ball. He goes inside and everybody's trying to steal his damn orange. But um, (laughs) yeah, it's crazy. There would be like a scene where there's like, 30 characters, and he just did all of it. I went on a tangent because I love a lot of his lusty Whisk. He did The Cameraman's Revenge, which was the taxidermied bug stop motion animation. Oh, yeah. Um, but my favorite one is the mascot. Actually, there's a legendary film I cannot find. There was a Duffy sequel for Duffy the dog, and it was called In the Land of the Vampires, where, the van- where our little dog, Hero, who's like this cute little dude, uh, he, I guess he's fighting vampires. I would, if anyone out there Knows where I mean, I've I've searched high and low. That's well, like the one of the only things I can't find. It's like still that's like the we were talking about this when we were hanging out the other day about the ritualization of cinema because like like now it's so different today. I don't want to even go on a huge tangent, but I think this is kind of a cool thing. But like on our are symptomatic of our society now is that so I grew up with like like the, the the old newsprint editions of Film Threat magazine and like that's how I found out about like Nick Zed and York Boogerite and filmmakers like that in the back and you'd read about these movies and you're like there's no way of seeing them on television or in the theater and you'd send away for like Germany for a VHS and maybe it would show up right right? but when it shows up like three months later at I mean I'm being generous like if you put it on and the first five minutes is boring as hell like you're gonna still watch because you ritualized this process it's like it's you wouldn't You know, now I can see those things on YouTube. And if it doesn't catch me in like, you know, a nanosecond, it's just like click. But the ritualization of cinema is kind of in that style. It's like for me, and this is the, this sounds terrible and super bougie or hipstery, (laughs) but like, I love records, I love vinyl, but I don't love vinyl, I have no, I, the audio quality I, my ears can't hear the difference between right. a CD and vinyl, what I like about it is it slows me down, Right. it makes me kind of ritualize it brings back that concept of an album this is not, I'm not breaking ground by bringing this concept up, right. I'm, I'm certainly not inventing that idea, but for me that's what it is, I just love it's not about the audio quality, it's literally about like I have to, uh, you know, I have to take time it's like, you know well, I think you
0: you hit the nail on the head, it, and for the creators of the world, the idea that the digital landscape has made so many avenues available for us to release things is a blessing, but when you grow up in the era of of cinema that we did, especially if you're interested in cult cinema and the underground, you're right, There is there was a ritualization or a worship of things that were not readily available, because there was limited, there were limited platforms. If you couldn't find it at the video store, if it wasn't on TV, there was something about it that felt forbidden. And so the second you found that forbidden item, you felt like you were part of something that not everyone was talking about. Like I remember in the back of one of those little guides, I had seen an ad for a movie. It was like shock treatment, a
1: Rocky Horror sequel. I love that movie. Like, my dirty secret is I love that one more than Rocky Horror Picture Show. It's one of my favorites. It's my dirty secret. Like I get, I get, I get looked at weirdly when but I tell I people that. I couldn't
0: find it for years. So when I finally found it, I was like, yeah, the, I
1: just had the soundtrack because they put it on the anniversary edition tape of the Rocky Horror Picture Show as like an like s- extra tape. So that's the only my, my reference. I knew the music. It's like Hamilton. I haven't seen Hamilton, but my wife listens to the music all the time, so I know the songs. Right. But um it's the same thing. It's like, so yeah, sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
0: No, it's just <laughs> like it felt like such a, a an achievement when I finally found it. hmm And so it was like, I don't know. That that sort of is lacking now, I think, because you can just Google it.
1: Yeah. And you know, it's funny too because do you think that and I, I have no evidence to support this, but it's just kind of a thing I was thinking about. I I feel like you have more eureka moments when you have to fetishize things like there was a definitive moment where I saw a movie and it was like, oh, I up until that point, I thought I was 11 years old. Right. And I and use the word forbidden. It was the forbidden zone. That movie, the Richard Elfman movie, the forbidden zone changed my life. I we weren't supposed to rent it, but I had this friend that could always get R rated movies from the <laughs> video store. And we got it. And I remember, like, up until that point, I thought movies did, like, three things. They had three types of things you could do. Right. And then I saw that movie, and it changed my life. And there was something... So special about it, and also not being able to IMDB any information about it. Like, the other problem, too, we have so much information. And it's not a, not a problem. It's just the uh, the offshot. But what you don't – what happens when you have too much access to information, what you do get is – so Forbidden Zone looked like a movie that was made by aliens. Like, to right. me, it's like I could not imagine a normal human being made that movie. And actually, having met Richard Elfman, he's not a normal human being in the best kind of way. I was say, we
0: don't want him to be. We don't want him yeah. to be
1: normal. But, like – I could not imagine that people would go home to a house and like eat a meal and then go to bed after you know and like use the toilet. I don't know. Maybe I could see them using the toilet, but uh, <laughs> but you know, I just they didn't. I could not imagine them existing in real life. And to me, it's like I always had this fantasy, and I still kind of have this fantasy, and it'll never happen. But like especially in these ages, that I would make a movie that would that someone would find and like. And maybe I'd be completely anonymous. And then, like, years later, they'd have no idea, like, who made this? This is, like, made by, like, strange aliens, but it speaks to me. Um, What was that? I had, yeah. So it's, like, there there, there were movies and then TV shows, too. I remember, um, and then for a while, I used to think I hallucinated these things. Like, I remember uh, I used to watch, like, PBS, like, late at night when I was Mm -hmm. a kid. Like, right up for Monty Python's Flying Circus. And then afterwards, they played... Uh, Terry Nation's other show not Doctor Who but Blake 7 Blake 7 yeah. which was also so formative for me because that was the first time I think I ever in, ingested something where it's just like and it adhered even though it's a science fiction show it adhered to the number one rule of horror which anyone can go at any time for any reason right one of the main characters like fell down a ladder and had a rock fall on him and they died the, the show I and mean, it's not a spoiler really but because it's you know, well, this who, is, you know who gives a 40 shit yeah. yeah. 40 years later but the thing's called Blake 7 it's like these outlaws in space it's right. like the dirty dozen in space or the Seven Samurai in space, but, like, in the second season, like, Blake dies. And then they they still show, still called Blake Seven for the next two seasons, but, like, the guy is, like, essentially dead. Yeah, Terry Nation
0: was one of those people who uh, was very crucial to melding genres together. Mm -hmm. Like, I think that horror and science fiction, especially during that era of BBC, were, were kind of one and the same. For listeners who uh, don't have the long memory or don't know, Terry Nation was one of the original founders of the world of Doctor Who. He created the Dalek. Uh, was he not the
1: actual creator of Doctor Who? He was oh, not the actual creator oh, wow. of Doctor Who. I Doctor didn't know Who that. was
0: created uh, most primarily, it was sort of like by a, a group of people, but uh, this is where I get to flex my nerd muscles. I love it. Doctor Who was originally. Uh, directly it was created by the bbc but the person most directly responsible was a woman named verity lambert who was the first producer of the show wow and uh what was really cool is uh the what a great name oh yeah she was she was fierce verity um, lambert and she and and the bbc did that kind of thing that comic books did where when you created creatures or aliens or whatever you still sort of Owned the rights to them at that time, like creator-controlled Daleks. Yeah, so anytime the Daleks appeared, and I think they still do when they are on Doctor Who. If you watch the credits, it always say, "You know, Daleks created by Terry Nation." Oh, no joke. And uh, that's why, like, there was that brief like aside when Amicus did the the Peter Cushing Doctor Who movies. They were Dalek movies because that was sort of like in the the Terry Nation licensing realm. Like, they were.
1: Oh my god! Is that how you say it? Do you say Amicus? Yeah. Oh, wow. I always had a micus this whole time like a dumbass.
0: <laughs> um, well, you know, as long as as long as you're watching the films, that what's, that's what counts. Yes, uh, absolutely. Well, this this brings us to a good point because you talk about renting Forbidden Zone. Yes. And how it kind of gave you this this new view of, of how movies can be made. And that leads me into a question that I like to, to discuss with filmmakers is, you know, here you are, you're running movies, you're seeing Return of the Living Dead with your mom at the theater, yeah. you're, you're running Forbidden Zone at home, mm-hmm. you're kind of like delving into this world of, of the peculiar and the bizarre uh, and, and falling in love with it. But was, what was the point where you were watching these movies and felt passively watching is not enough, I also want to be in this world and, and make films? What, when, when was that turning
1: point? Well, I always wrote like I was an indoor kid, classic indoor kid, but I always wrote. But I just didn't like sometimes it takes me a little a few twistier roads to make my way around the mountain. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I feel like there was always a part of me that wanted to make films and I always wanted to do like special effects for films. But it did somehow it didn't connect that I and I guess I would default, like assume I would direct these things. But they were never anything that, like, I want to be a director. It's like, I want to make this particular movie, and I guess that would require me to direct it. Right. And, but we had such lofty ones that, like, I remember we had one we were doing a, because uh, we thought we could make that we had all, I had a friend who was an, a mechanical engineer, and he and even in high school, and we were trying to make a Robocop uh, parody about a Robo Bear, about like a stuffed bear Robocop, but we actually had like, we were like built this working, like it had servos and it could do all this stuff and it had like puppeteered legs. But we never like we got so caught in that minutia that would have film never really got made. Um, but I will say that, like, I didn't, you know, even like we didn't have like a film department in my high school. And when I went to college, I started off in the theater department, even though the UT had a film department, because I just didn't like it just didn't occur to me because I'd done some theater. I'm like, oh, well, I got to do the thing I've done. And I was writing, I was in a one act class and I wrote a play and I wrote a play about, um, based on William Castle's, uh, autobiography that step right up. I want to scare the pants off America, cool. which is like my favorite book at the time. And I called it shock value. And I was even going to try to like electrify the seats in the audience, make it interactive. But then I realized I'm like, what am I doing? Like I'm writing plays about movies, right? Like, what am I doing? Why am I, you know, this is not what I want to do. I want to make movies. So I switched over. Also, I had this stupid notion that I'm like, people in theater are so dramatic. People in film will be a lot more normal because I'm obviously very smart. <laughs> um, so yeah. So, yeah. but no, I didn't like actually really make. I wasn't a kid in the backyard with the eight millimeter camera. I always wrote. I right. wrote like an assload. I I would submit bad science fiction stories to like analog and uh, in like omni or or amazing stories or in the places that you could and always get rejected i was gonna say did you ever get in i got one in to a small there was i can't remember the name of it i should like i got a horror story that i ended up later on making as a the story i made as this one of the segments of my anthology first feature but like i wrote this thing in high school the first draft and it was uh about a uh, monster that lived in a maximum security prison was eating the prisoners because it was just lazy. And it's like, hey, they're just there. I can't do anything about it. Uh, and then the prisoners fight back. But that was in a something. Uh, it's in, it was like a very small press thing. And it was spider, like spider silk or spider web. I can't remember the name of it. It's definitely not a legacy magazine. It came and it was like mimecraft. Mm-hmm. But like that was the first one. And I got contributor copies in like 10 bucks. But I was, like, so excited because I was, like, 16. Right. And But I, that's pretty much up until I started writing about film later as an adult. That was the first time I'd ever been published.
0: And you had said before we started recording that there was a period of time where you thought you might actually go into makeup and special effects.
1: Yeah, my 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 first true love was uh, stop motion animation due to Harry Harryhausen and due to Phil Tippett. Uh, which, by the way, on the Phil Tippett thing, if you haven't seen the Vice documentary where he talks about, um, there's a 30 minute Vice documentary where Phil Tippett talks about how he animated the ad ats in Empire Strikes Back. And he said that he was on so much LSD that he would, he hung out with his cat and his cat told him how to animate. And his cat would talk to him. And He's not joking. Like, he's like, yeah, no, I tripped with my cat and I was like in there. I mean, I guess you have to make that really boring process fun somehow, but the cat would tell him how to move the legs of the adat. at So you should, yeah, it's a, it's a free, on the Vice free website, you can watch this 30 minute documentary of Phil Tippett talking about tripping balls and...
0: Well, take notes, Star Wars yeah. fans.
1: Yeah, that's my favorite Star Wars story.
0: Um, the Ice Planet of Hoth. That's Rose was- Two was uh further helped by our feline friends
1: <laughs> but yeah so um I wanted so I I uh I, I, might as well, I don't care I'm gonna i want to date myself but I I graduated high school in 92 uh Jurassic Park came out in 93 right uh summer of 92 my parents were nice enough to take me to the Rhode Island so I could do a tour I got accepted uh and I was doing the scholarship stuff to go to Rhode Island School of Design I can't and, you know, like Jim Henson's daughter taught there, like mm-hmm. taught puppetry and animation and stuff. And I was like, I was gonna, this I, this is my dream. This is the only college that has a degree in this. And pretty much that was the end of it at that. I mean, like Phil Tippett technically works on Jurassic Park, but he went from like, I mean, I'm sure, you know, originally they were going to do that stop motion. And it was like they showed them the computer tests. They already done like stop motion tests. You can see that footage. Right. Um and then like, no, this is so much better. And I and like Phil tip is probably like, shit, I just got to go do some more LSD now. Um, but no, um, I came I, and it's good. It is very good that I was not able to get that degree or to work in that because I can't even draw a stick figure. Like, I wanted to move the little guys around. I can't. I mean, and I like futzing with the robotics and stuff and like in the in the in the, in the armatures. But like. This requires like a tactile artistic talent of which I have none. So how I got as a high school graduate to the point where I thought that I could apply my my meager talents to something that I was. I mean, we can make an argument whether or not I'm qualified to make direct feature films. I think that's a valid argument, but um I definitely whatever you think of my movies, I'm definitely more qualified to make those than I am to animate like some sort of like actual physical artistic creature.
0: Well, talk to me a little bit about that shift. Then you go to the Rhode Island uh, School of Design. Jurassic Park comes out and kind of like smacks down a lot of practical effects. Yeah. I- at the moment, I, th- I think people are trying to bring them back in their ways. And yeah, it's it, always it, going to be on the yeah. outside.
1: It'll never be like a return. to Right. It. Uh,
0: what then was was the, the the shift in the track that you're like, I'm going to do, I'm going to stay in film, but I'm doing this.
1: Yeah. It was writing, because writing has been a constant. I will say that I'm very undisciplined in most things in life. Uh, I'm not a very organized person. I'm not very disciplined. Mm-hmm. But I've had one discipline I've had since I was 16 years old, and I'm pretty much stuck to it, unless I'm on set shooting, or, you know, there's some other life emergency happens. I write every single day of my life. I have a minimum, like, I think the, the least I'll write is an hour's worth. But, like, you know, I try to do like good five-hour block almost every day when I can. Right. Uh, but like that's at least at least three to four days a week where I'm doing extensive blocks, and the rest are like here and there. But that's been a discipline. And that like, this knowing that I wanted to write and knowing that it felt less intimidating to write movies because there's a lot of white space on those pages, and I mean, like literally that's how my stupid lizard brain works. I was just right. like, there's a lot of blank space on those pages. I can crank them out a lot faster. Clearly, an artist speaks. Um, (laughs) No. uh, Yeah. So and then what happened was, you know, I went to uh, UT and I went to film school there. And basically, I feel like I'm pretty annoying and loud and in people's faces now like I'm just like I'm fairly sociable but I, that took me a while. I was a very introverted kid in high school. I started doing stand up literally as a test to get out of that. And then I worked at a comedy club in college as a, as like one of the MCs just because and like I just I mean I wasn't particularly good but I was willing. Right. Um but yeah, but what and it, but in my evolution of kind of coming out of my shell the first couple of years in film school I um It makes it sound like they're forever. The first couple of years, the first couple of semesters in film school, I was like, you know, when we had to make projects, I was just like too nervous to ask people to help me out. So I ended up being my own cinematographer or like, you know, I did so much of the stuff that you should like disseminate the work on, but eventually got to the point where like people like liked what I shot enough and they would ask me to shoot theirs. And by the time I left college, I'd actually shot two graduate level uh, feature films. Um, And uh, neither of which, lit the world on fire, but uh, <laughs> uh, one of them had a lot of kung fu in it, and that was kind of cool. And had some like famous kung fu guys in it, like uh, who uh, the choreographers of Blade, uh, cool. uh, Ron and Roger Yun, the Yun brothers, uh, they, and one of the other one was the uh, villain in Shanghai Noon, the uh, bald Asian gentleman, uh, but yeah, so like a lot of it is just. I mean, like I forced Gumped my career. I I essentially would like be in the right place at the right or wrong time. And I was just like get the winds would push me different directions. And I, you know, I was myopic about being able to see an end goal very well. And I think, you know, it could also be argued to this day that it still has not changed. Uh, But yeah, I mean, I always had an I had a love and that love covered a lot of ground. Well, by.
0: Taking that time and and actually not disseminating the different roles on a film and doing all these different things, you gain so many skills. And looking across your resume, as I said in your introduction, you've done so many things. Like I've seen, like, you know, you've worked as an editor on projects. You've been a DP for so many different things. Uh, You've done makeup, and I saw you have a hair credit on a film. Oh, I do? Yeah. uh, One of of the... Oh, I mean,
1: I don't doubt it, but I like, (laughs) who the hell knows?
0: So... I think that that probably uh, really helped just increase your value stepping right out of film school into the practical world and that you were able to do all of these things.
1: To some degree, when you need to be self-reliant, when you don't want to wait on people, when you're impatient like me, yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a detriment, I have noticed, when you're actually working within the system because people want you to be one thing. Right. If you have like, an agent or a manager and you're like, I want to make a science fiction movie and a comedy and a horror and uh lesbian drama, like they're going to be like pick one dude like basically my my representation when I first started like getting represented was like you know you probably don't want to DP as much because we wanted to sell you as a writer director right and that was like a sacrifice I was essentially willing to make though I missed that quite a bit Um, but yeah I mean like it's hard enough for people to see you at all So if you kind of muddy the field by being all These different things and like and I'm in I'm even talking about just with even being a writer director Right like if you have if you're A cross genre person So like I kind of have like and, and it's something too. like I, I, I'm i known I'm known the five people who know Me Uh, I'm known as, like, a comedy guy for features, essentially. Right. Uh, My one non-comedy film being Earthling, and I feel like I was so adamant to not to show I could be serious that I was like, it's it's way too serious. It's like, it's about as funny as, like, a cancer screening. It's, like, not a funny movie at all, and it needs some levity. Right. And I would notice in that movie, by the way, that, like, people would laugh at things that were half jokes just because they needed that valve. But anyway, so, yeah, so, you know, known as a comedy guy for, like— Features, but then like on I do I've done some TV writing and I've optioned some TV scripts and they're all like historical science, right? Like I I that's I so I have like a sub and so the TV people the fi, the three TV people who know me know me doing historical science like science about you know scientific achievements in history. I, I've been working on a project about like a CIA uh, science program in the 1960s and blah, blah, blah. But um, yeah, so i not only as much known as comedy for, for the five people that know me in television, but you know, it's just...
0: Well, I certainly come from a background that I think the more diverse your portfolio, the just the better your work is going to be. Uh, I know, I that, love that too. I know that the industry t- tends to be myopic, but you know, I think for a lot of us who didn't necessarily break into the studio system initially, that spirit of having to learn to do everything helps you. And yeah, uh, you know, I've never understood the need to be. One like no human being is just one thing always. So, why does an artist have to be one thing always? Uh, and I think that, you know, even as my work or your work or like a lot of the people we know veers more towards commercial, I still always celebrate that kind of mm. DIY attitude, which leads me to a, a institution that we both at different times have been a part of because no one I does, know where
1: you're going with this. No
0: one does DIY better than our dear friends at Trauma. Choma. And I know that you worked there for a bit. So could you tell me a little bit about
1: that? Yeah, yeah. And I want to circle back to one thing also about we were just talking about Do you mind if I just one? So, like, there's something that also, like, my other problem as a filmmaker, I like films that aren't one thing, too. So, like... I like what they call tweeners, uh, which is, you know, it's kind of like the taint of the film world. It taint the balls, taint the other one. Right. Um, but no, a tweener is like something that you don't know what shelf up blockbuster to put things on. Right. And by the way, I think that whole that like that fear of the tweener should be gone by now right. because we don't use that metric to, to search for movies. It's all it's all curation based or algorithmically based. So who the fuck cares anymore? But of course, I feel like the studios when it comes to marketing and stuff, they're always about a decade behind. hmm. But anyway, um, about that, like all my favorite movies growing up were tweeners like Brazil. And it's like it's like comedy, sci-fi, satirical. Like, you know, what are you even like? Actually, that was one of the scariest movies. That movie scared the alien didn't scare me. Brazil fascinated me because I was terrified of it. I couldn't be around it. And actually, a lot of my favorite movies now are ones that I I was initially completely repulsed by. But I remember being, and there was something very specific that freaked me out. It was the inhumanity in people's character, like their attitude. There was a scene where the heroes, and this is and it's meant to be a joke. There's a joke, there's a gag in the movie where uh, the Bob Hoskins character, who's like a, a plumber and his little assistant, um, they're wearing these like vacuum sealed like plastic see-through bio seats so they can like work on the pipes in this guy's apartment. Right. But, and they reroute their air tube to a poop tube. So their their costumes start getting filled up with poop and they basically drown in their own poop. And it's like a heroic kind of laughy moment for the characters. I remember like the hero just murdered these two other people. And it was like and that's like, you know, meant to be a joke. And I absolutely love that now, but at the time, that freaked me out because they're in their basic lack of humanity right. scared the shit out of me. Anyway, sorry to go on that huge digression. No, I
0: love Brazil. Honestly, uh, one of the things that no one seems to talk about enough is how chilling Michael Palin is oh, in it. Oh, he's fantastic. Uh, because as it being so well-known as sort of like the genteel nice guy of Monty Python uh, to see him mm-hmm. in this
1: kind of horrifying role that scene where he's got the blood on his costume and I keep saying costume for clothes right. uh, when he's got the blood on his suit and he's talking to his daughter and his daughter's hanging out in his office and he's like talking about how he tortures people but in like a little kind of fun little like this is how we do it little girl you know it's so <laughs> and, casual and, yeah. and that's
0: terrifying I think yeah,
1: yeah. all it, that that movie is has mastered like it, it's a master class in like just how to affect people surely with tone mm-hmm. um and it was one of the two scariest movies for me. I had another other movie that terrified me. Do you have a movie that you are irrationally afraid of? Like you can't even look at the key art from it kind of thing when you're a kid. Because for me, it was a very dumb movie. that oh, I, I think actually, there always are. Well I have one that like literally If I saw the poster it would put me in a Cataleptic state like I'd have to hide I remember Like I have the fight or flight thing where I can Remember the first time I saw the trailer on A television in my kitchen in my house Vividly I could smell the scents In the room I remember driving home In my parent back in my parents car And they pulled the mail out and they and That was back before cable the only cable Channel is preview that's like really oh, yeah. And preview had like five movies and it would Be like there's silver streak there's nine to five and There it is the poster of the Movie that scared me more than anything in my entire life. And to this day, if I'm I can look at it now, but if I'm not prepared to look at it, I still get a jump. It's the uh let's see if we can guess it. I don't know if that plays fun game. It was 1977. It okay. was a movie, it was a creature movie. The creature in the movie itself is really lame and has been made fun of on illustrious shows like South Park. Uh, but the poster they were smart enough to make the poster art be terrifying. And in fact the trailer for the movie is just like the it's like the world's first GIF or GIF. Do you say GIF or GIF?
0: I say GIF because it makes me think of peanut butter yeah. and I like that. Well, so, well
1: the trailer, they were smart by not showing footage of the movie. They show they have a narration and a slow heartbeat over the animated the thing getting closer to camera. The the key art. Seventy seven isn't the Manitou, is it? I'll give you the tagline. Okay it's not the product of sorcery or witchery it's not the product of science. it's it says it's, it's not supernatural in nature it's like that oh don't move she can hear you she'll find you oh my god uh this is directed by a not by a big director who was his only foray into horror and he ran away from it he in you know, paramount pictures spent way too much money on this movie unfortunately the dvd is just bare bones and just has the widescreen version of it on there but um i will also say here i'll, I'll give you one more um uh, it's part of my favorite genre in fact i wrote my thesis paper on this about uh animals run, nature on run a muck it's a nature on a muck movie and it happens to star um it has one bad racial stereotype as armand asante playing a native american in it and who has a chainsaw fight oh, with God. uh with um uh, is it Richard Farnsworth? But uh, Talia is in it.
0: Uh, oh, my God. I know the movie you're talking about. What is it? Just it's
1: Prophecy, the monster movie oh, with the bear, the bear, man, yeah, bear yeah. pig and man, bear pig from South Park. <laughs> Sorry. Now you have to edit this down because I made you do a stupid. Like, no, it's fine. I, up.
0: I uh, you know, that poster, I- by the way. It's it's crazy poster art. I know exactly the poster and I need art you're to give
1: my, uh, a buddy Joel Petrikas, some shit because in his movie Buzzard, like I wasn't prepared for it. The main character has a giant prophecy poster on his wall, and I remember like watching it in bed one night and forgetting that that was there. And like, god damn it, it's right there, and they, like, freaked me out, and I jumped a little bit.
0: My movie that I was irrationally afraid of is is way dumber than that, because at least I can wrap my mind around why you would be afraid
1: of Prophecy. Well, you know, there's a scene in Prophecy where a raccoon jumps on Richard Farnsworth's face and they have like, and he's like, he's thrashing at it. Like, you know, remember like all the Naked Gun movies when like somebody would throw a pillow at um, Leslie Nielsen and he would act like it's like tearing his face apart? They have a scene where he's fighting raccoon that way.
0: Right, and it's it very satirical, I think.
1: It, <laughs> that movie's it, not meant to be, though. No, it's one. not meant to be, but... Wait, what was yours, sorry? Uh,
0: mine was Flatliners. When I was a kid, I like, the, like the poster art was... You may have won, was, was won on boring. that one, by the way. Yeah, you may n- have won. Yeah, <laughs> it was... It, it's... I remember seeing, like, the snippets, especially of the the little girl who's stalking Kiefer Sutherland, mm-hmm. like, how, like, weird and dreamy it was, and it was sort of, like, the repercussions for his bad actions, like, and I remember, like, feeling for her, but, like, scared for him, and it, like, used to, like, really mess me up because it was a film with, like, morality. Yeah. And I was, like, maybe too young, like, I could just, like, wrap my mind around, like, zombies and vampires and things, yeah. but it's just, like, these kids did something really fucking bad, now they're paying for it. And uh, it was just sort of, like, It was maybe more than I was willing to deal with at the time, Um.
1: and I never even saw Prophecy. By the way, I just saw the trailer and the poster, and it it would put me into like a state. Like it would, I I would have nightmares about the poster. I would close my eyes and see it in my brain, like behind my (laughs) lids. Finally, my mom was like, she watched it, and she's like, "Okay, you need to watch this movie because it's really stupid. You just need to watch it, and you're gonna be fine."
0: Your mom's like the MVP of this episode. She keeps coming back with yeah. with, with some cool stuff. Uh, so trauma. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, now it's all back.
1: Yeah. M- see, that's a long way around the mountain. Like yeah, I that's always how take we do, that. Yeah.
0: So tell me about your time with Trauma.
1: Yeah, so I unofficially worked for Trauma in that I worked for a lot. I happened to shoot a lot of their uh, acquisition films, uh, and a couple of them that were actually designed to be acquisition films. Essentially, they didn't do the financing, but like the deals were in place already. Um, I worked with my one of my best friends, uh, Barack Epstein, who at the time was actually interning for Trauma, or he had just finished his internship, and we started working together. And we made like five or six of these movies, and then. Lloyd was in all our movies. Actually, Lloyd, here's a fun fact. I Lloyd is in my first feature in A Four Course Meal. Uh, I shot him in my apartment on Black and White 16 reciting this poetry I wrote. It is supposed to be like this kind of like fairy tale. And I ended up cutting out of the movie. And then also, Barack and I did a movie called Corn Man, American Vegetable Hero. And the original <laughs> cut of it, before it got released, had a Lloyd Kaufman scene, which also got cut out uh for the for the eventual release and then Lloyd always gives us shit about cutting cutting him out of his movie of our movies. But then we made Prison a Go Go, which you could not Lloyd is such a major character in that movie we couldn't cut him out. He has like he has that movie is about as a women in p- prison parody if you couldn't tell. Right. And it has like Rhonda Shear as a star and Mary Warnoff and then Lloyd plays like the main prison guard. And like there are just too many scenes of him being humped by uh um uh, um, yeah, um oh my god. what What is that? Uh um USA up all night. Why? Ronnie? Jesus, yep. my brain. Um, see, I'm old. That's what happens. Um, senior moment. But yeah, no. So I just worked on a lot of this stuff. Uh, we also have a theory that uh, Barack is uh, Lloyd's illegitimate child <laughs> because he's Lloyd has done things for Barack that I've never heard of him doing for other people. Like I'll give you, for instance, when Prisoner Go-Go, that was going to be a, tra- a trauma acquisition Uh And we kind of had the paperwork done. But then uh, Shakarama EI came in and made a better offer. And Lloyd gracefully let us take it. And he still did the extra features. He still does his, like, greetings from Tromaville, like, opening, like, on the Shakarama DVD. There's a classic Lloyd... Thing, but that like a for but Lloyd. that's like yeah, and it's like we're pretty sure that Brock is, is his illegitimate child. He <laughs> loves Brock so much. But um, the other thing too, yeah. So there was that make your own damn movie uh DVD is like the series, Right. and I had two of the movies I shot for them were were case studies. One being Prisoner Go Go, and the other one being Ramsey Abed's film, The Tunnel. Mm-hmm. Uh, which stars Mark Borchardt of uh, American movie fame, like really cool, not that long after American movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, if I'm not sure if you want to go deep cut movies. I also starred Toe, the star of rock opera, of... Uh, um, the, the, the Austin feature rock opera, which was a kind of a legendary underground film, uh, and I recently told, heard from the director Bob Ray. Told me that Toe is now in prison for murder. Oh wow! Bum, bum. So deep cuts there. That's some real deep cutting. But yeah, so yeah, no, I just worked. Oh, and here's the fun one. So um, there was a uh, a brief iteration. There was Trauma Dallas, and Trauma Dallas existed. The spacious offices was my apartment with Barack. together.
0: So, you were the headquarters of Troma Dallas? We were the headquarters
1: of Troma Dallas, which existed for one reason and one reason alone because Blockbuster is based in Texas, in Dallas specifically. And a certain, we were, Troma was banned from corporate Blockbuster, which is like 45% of the Blockbusters, but the 55% that were franchises we could sell to. And they had two major franchising conventions, Blockbuster franchise conventions per year. And we were, like, the home base for, like, Lloyd to come in and, like, crash on our couch and then, like, have piles of VHSs he could take there. At one point, we had so many VHSs that um, – I'm trying to remember if this is at our place or where this was. There was a situation where we there, – there was a pile of – we had no room for furniture so that we had to make, like, coffee table out of, like, unwanted trauma – VHSs, <laughs> like I think Doggy Tales was like it was one of them. Oh my gosh, Doggy Tales! I remember that tape. Um, yeah, it's the Trauma's ill. You know, we're gonna make a kids movie with a talking dog. Um, <laughs> well, they did make it. They did make it. Yeah, I mean, if you want to consider that making, but uh, yeah, no, and I and I knew a lot of people from Trauma. Like I've gone on to work with you know a lot of Trauma graduates, so to speak. But I all you know, I will say that I don't necessarily want to make trauma movies. But I will say this: I learned so much about how to be nimble and right. how to work in a certain way from from those films. Like I like the idea; it kind of reinforces one of my favorite things about making movies and why I'm a my, why. And one of the reasons why I make movies and I don't write like crappy novels, right? Because I think in a novel, you're kind of in this, I mean you could make the argument that life always interferes but like you're kind of in a bubble right right? you you know you can write it exactly what you want it to be and you can have control of the elements now obviously you know if you go to a grocery store and something bad happens to you maybe gives you an idea and it changes something but whatever but with a movie it's like you know if you're shooting a beach party scene for a movie and it's like you get out there you know if it's a studio film and it starts raining and you're shooting on location you either go to a studio or you know maybe you shoot something else or you just reschedule and you let everybody have the day off whatever you do but like in a low budget film like you can't do that. So suddenly now you're making a rainy beach party movie and like you just created a new thing. You've never seen a rainy beach party movie before. You accidentally life intervened. You used the opportunity and now you have a thing that has never been seen before. Right. But you didn't plan that, you know. So being able to I pride myself the only thing I might I, I'm egocentric about, I suppose, because I, I would never say that I'm a great writer or a great director, but I'm really good at hiring good people. Mm-hmm. But the thing I think my, my ultimate talent maybe is recognizing happy accidents or th- or opportunities where that and incorporating them instantly into right. the piece. Uh, and that's something that I, I, I thrive on. The only speech I ever give like when we're about to shoot a movie on my set is you know, like if we make a movie only as good as a the script, then we fail right. and you wanna exceed that that's life. just the foundation
0: well, and the reason I wanted to talk about trauma a little bit is because trauma, in their way, has always sort of served as an outsider to the world of cinema. And uh, what you said is sort of the narrative of a lot of people who came from that school, uh, James Gunn, Matt yeah. Haga, Will Keenan, people who have like started there that they.
1: That was my era there, too, by yeah, the way.
0: Learned all about the, you know, the ins and outs of things because you had no other choice. Uh but i I'm, I'm i've always sort of applauded the punk rock attitude of what lloyd uh does there and um of course we at dead for filth are uh big fans of of otherness and the outsider so we can't not celebrate uh that history and i think it's also a good transition into discussion of uh some of your more recent work as a filmmaker because what well, we've referenced a few of your features but yeah um one of the things that i really wanted to talk about and it's a uh, the content of of both wuss and slash I think, in a way is a focus on outsider uh status, and like bullying is a theme in both of those yeah, movies it is, yeah and uh i'm I'm really interested in uh just sort of your take and your approach to these things because. Obviously, uh, as you know, this is is an LGBTQ oriented show and we we talk about frequently that draw to this sort of material. Um, And I I just wanted to kind of get your take about that material in your work.
1: Um, You know, I just. I'm very premise based. Mm -hmm. I like premises that I haven't heard in the past, like, I'm not, like, I've always wanted to be a simple film, like, I've always tasked myself, like, this next film is gonna be very clean and simple. Right. The concepts will be simple, and it starts, I always, and I, I always think I'm gonna pull it off, and it never, like, I can't write, I have to convolute things. Right. Because right. I, like, I have to, like, as, I do base things on characters, but that character has to be tied to a premise. I'm not right. good at just, like, being calm about those things. So, like, a lot of it's just to dipping into things that I guess are just Unconscious things with me That I, I'm just drawn To outsiders It's like I have no interest In making a movie About a cop Or a doctor Or a lawyer Or anything like that Like right. the, the standard Ten poles of like Television or movies Because those people Are not like they don't speak to me, and I've seen that. Everyone, other other people do that, and they do it well. I don't. I have nothing to contribute. I have nothing to contribute to that right. model. I want to write about people that don't typically get these stories. Like slash, for instance, was like one of our pitch lines was, "It's a coming of age movie for kids that don't get a coming of age movie." Like there are there are movies were about uh, gay gay identifying kids or straight ones, but kids that don't know and where the messaging in the movie is you will figure it out on your own and you don't need to put yourself in a box I had not seen that in a movie before and in fact actually that was something that I had to defend because we had people associated with a project early on we were putting it together That's like you need to know what he is at the end even if you don't show it you as a director i'm like why why do right. i need to know because he doesn't know why do i need to know and that was like i'm not normally the type of person that stands up for like major like things but that's like the one line in the sand i drew right and that became one of the strongest aspects the thing everyone mentions about the movie if they like it is you know that that's a major thing for them. He's not, he doesn't at the end turn a corner and is like, I am gay or straight or even bisexual or even pansexual. Right. But there's nothing, there's no labeling at all. And then with like, you know, with Wuss, it was just the idea of like, I think it was like the idea of coming back home and doing something kind of pathetic with your life. Right. Like, and uh, because I I had to move home after college for a while because my father was really sick to take care of him. And like, I kind of was like doing jobs and like I went and did uh, video production stuff at a junior college where I'd spend a semester. Mm -hmm. And it just felt like a really like lame thing to go back to. Even though it ended up being very uh, serendipitous, because I met my uh, my long term assistant director there, Angie Meyer, who's gone on to be huge. She's doing, uh, she does a lot of TV. She just ghosted with uh, Craig uh, Craig Robinson and uh, oh, Adam Scott. Yeah. Adam Scott and like she does huge great things. She did Ghost Story for David Lowery. Um, anyway, but uh, yeah, so I think it's just all about this uh, type of characters. Like right. something drives it, and it's usually going to be in my interest. I can't do something that I'm not not I'm not interested. In. I can't fake it.
0: Well, and of course, uh, yeah, I liked what you said about Slash because, um, you know, in addition to just you know, being a fan of you and your work, uh, Slash, it, with my audience, is is something I, I really wanted to bring you on to talk about. Because when I first connected with you and met you, Slash was making the festival round, specifically at a lot of LGBTQ film festivals. Yeah. I first saw it at Frameline. Uh, I played Outfest. You and I met at Comic-Con during that run. Uh and what I thought was truly remarkable about the movie is exactly what you said, is uh, it is a movie that kind of speaks to the the narrative that is existing in the world right now that nobody gets to label you but you. Yeah. You made a coming-of-age movie that is both for queer people but for everybody in that it's all about personal agency. And... Uh, I mean, also I just think that it's such an interesting subject because normally when we'd use the word slash on this show, we talk about Jason or Freddie or whatever, but your movie refers to a very different kind of slash and that's slash fiction, which is generally uh in in the space of uh fan fiction writers who do it's usually same sex pairings in fan fiction
1: yeah specifically if you i mean and I always get called out if i get the if I get the uh the nomenclature wrong but Despite being argued with by people within the community, I will say, and it's it's classic definition is it's M slash M. It's it's male male pairing because fem slash would be, you know, the 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 female version of that. And there's a het fiction, which is pairing of heterosexual pairings. But like, yeah, but traditionally the term slash is male with male. Right.
0: And uh, tell me a little bit, because I think this is the first time we've ever really gotten a chance to talk about the idea of slash fiction on the show. But I did tell you uh, when we got together the other day that one of the most frequent questions that I get when I do the Comic-Con panel every year is by people in the audience who ask what uh, my opinion is on the world of slash fiction. And honestly, I, you know, I'm, I'm all for people making gay content wherever. So, yeah. But what drew you specifically to that world in terms of like, I know that Slash began as a short that you then turned into a feature. right uh, why, why that? I mean, I know you said you like outsiders and things, stories that you don't normally see, but at what point were you sitting, in, sitting there and you were like, ah, my movie is going to be about someone who writes... Slash fiction.
1: Well, what's in, so I've, I've known about slash fiction essentially my entire life right? because I, I, when I was younger, my father would take me to like the comic conventions and drop me off at the, there's like the older, not sexy comic conventions where it's like in a Radisson hotel and it's like, you know, a bunch of dusty bins. There's actually something kind of like romantic about that to me. I like that idea, but there would always be like my dad would give me like 20 bucks and like I'll come back for you at 7 p.m. or whatever. And I just wander around. I go look at like, you know, D&D modules or comics, or whatever. And then like occasionally they'd always have rooms where you could screen movies. It's like, a, like you could watch, you know, whatever, you know, a lot of it. Actually, there there was actually some fun rooms like that, which is a side conversation where like I saw my first SOT horror film at a convention like that. I never seen Blood Cult, which was made, which is considered to be the first movie ever specifically made for the home video market. But that's a whole other story. But one of these rooms was like the 18 up room. And I always wondered what was going on in there. And mostly it's just hentai and stuff like that going on. But occasionally the 18-up room was like, Panels or people talking about slash fiction or selling the mime. And this is you know pre-internet, so it's like all the mimeographed, like you know, like uh, there what was the, there was a really famous one, like a, a Star Trek related one that was like one of the. And I'm I know the name. I was blanky on it, but it was like I would see those magazines. And it was just like they were like this weird forbidden thing that was always fascinating to me, and I could never process what the attraction was. But I was really, and I've written fanfic, like standard fan fiction before, like right. But um, so I get that to some degree but I still there's something about that I just didn't really connect to on a phenomenal level and my quest to connect with that was kind of like as I got older I started realizing more and more how it's an outlet for underrepresented uh, underrepresentation in in, in genre fiction and how it's a way of kind of like course correcting that for people that want to be able to see themselves represented Uh, and it became fascinating to me like I kind of wanted to approach the movie where it kind of hopefully would hit would be meaningful for people that within that community, but also for people outside of the community when might see him be like, you know what? I'm not, look, I'm not expecting anyone who's an outsider to go watch a movie and be like, I'm gonna write slash fiction when they get out. But I do think that you understand why he does right by the end. And the good and the bad. Like, you know, look, I got I got I get knocked on a little bit by the slash community because I I'm, you know, I, I a lot of these I, you know, I make it a comedy and a lot of the stuff is being being represented the movies like crack fiction what they call crack fiction was like that they like the most off the rails like you can make fun of it kind of stuff right but not all of it is and it's just a mix I mean I made a comedy I have to have that stuff in there right but it's not there's no there's no mockery and there's no like condescension and it's seen as a vehicle to self-discovery and for me it's like I'm I'm very much about transformative works Mm -hmm. like uh you know, like archive of their own and, uh, where they have all the transforming, like it's like a a repository for people writing stuff where they're literally doing changing representation and genre fiction. Uh, so that to me is fascinating. And I think, and I am a big, big, big believer in fair use and a big believer in like the, the open dissemination and manipulation of art to create new art. Uh, and I feel like that's kind of an epicenter of that. Right. Um, is there a bad slash? Feature? Absolutely, but there's also good stuff too, and it's well, like there's bad regular. There's bad every. Sure. You know, yeah, it's like you can't. You know, I try not to, not to to, to put everything in a box based on, you know, the the, the bad examples, right, or the uh, the the easy to mock examples. Now, look, you could make fun of this stuff. Sure. But I firmly believe, and I'll get in trouble again. I've said I got in trouble for saying this before, and I'll get in trouble for saying it again, but it's okay because I, 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 I believe it. And I don't think this is a knock, is that in any community that can't make fun of itself is not a community. And I, I do get that I'm also not considered to be part of that community, so I, I'm an outsider making fun of that community. But I also don't think I'm as much as an outsider as a lot of these people want. The people that are the critics within the fanfic community who do not like that I made this movie, right. uh, which are they're the seem to be the only people that don't like the movie. Um, well, but,
0: I I view the movie as as something of an entry point if it's a world you're not familiar with. Yeah, it, and uh, it's not a documentary. It's either. not a documentary, and but I do think that. It's also a framing device for something that's bigger, and it's what we talked about at, at the top of, of this topic. Yeah, that you just wanted to show how formative creation can be, and how you can find yourself in in your your work, in your art, uh, and how you don't always have to define yourself by it or allow yourself to be defined. Yeah, I think it's a really wonderful film for queer people and people in general uh and it's a brilliantly uh brilliantly made and a great cast michael Ian black missy Pyle. just a, i i really like it and uh it, it's been something that since i saw it on the circuit um that i've been wanting to talk about especially because i get asked about slash fiction on panels so frequently uh that here's a movie that maybe it doesn't speak to the the diehards of the community, but I don't know that that's what you were trying to do anyway.
1: No, I wasn't trying to make a, a documentary and I wasn't trying to make something. It was like, I, I had to take shorthand. Yeah. And also, you know, it's, I'm already in a weird spot because slash fiction is predominantly written by women. It's mm-hmm. like over 80% of it's written by women. Uh, not only am I going into it as a male director, my protagonist is male. But that was a conscious decision. That wasn't that wasn't trying to to, to Christopher Columbus, the native lands. You know, I right. wasn't trying to co-op anything. That was an idea of like, I wanted to make this character an outsider, even amongst outsiders. Right. Um, that was important to me that he was trying to find a soft place on land and was having a problem even Within the thing that he connected to. Because, like, the character, you know, his parents are going through a rough patch. They're not really able to be there for him, even though they're good parents and they're not like the people he should be. They would not be the type of people that would be freaked out if he turned out to be gay. Right. But he doesn't feel like he can talk to them because they're going through their own shit and he doesn't can't talk. He doesn't only have any friends and he has an older sister and he definitely can't talk to. So he has his writing and the forums. That's what he's got. Right. And that's what allows him to find. Not necessarily find himself, but find the answer to the question. Like find the answer that he doesn't need. To. He comes to the realization that he can be who he, he can be who he's who he needs to be without defining himself. But that itself is kind of a realization. But um, yeah, and the, and the crazy thing is too. It's like we talk about the etymology of the film. Um, this is a bit of a tangent, but like going back to the original question. I like see I, I make short films very cheaply normally and like under like around a thousand bucks or so. So it's like if it comes out terribly, I can just bury it in the sand and like no harm, no foul. Like right. I don't have investors like, you know, pounding down my door. But um I'll use it as a proving ground for ideas that I think are very fascinating to me, but are may not make may not be good for a longer format. Right. So I made slash because I just had this notion about kids who are like really into Harry Potter and then stumbling into this world. Right. Uh, and then when they were two, where you would make the argument that they're too young to be there. So that was all based on Harry Potter erotica. But, um, and I was terrified. Actually, my biggest fear was not even about the Harry Potter part. My biggest fear was that so a major component of the movie was people staring at chat screens and the screens on their computer. I'm like, that's the least cinematic thing I can even imagine. But, um, I went and played like fantastic fest and I played a bunch of other plays out fest. I would, I I would go to the screenings and I would watch the audience. And there's one scene in particular where he's having a a conversation that you could call it an inappropriate conversation between him and an older man, but he doesn't know the identity of this man necessarily. Uh, in the, in the feature it's Michael Ian Black's character in the short, it's somebody else. But there's a very, it's a meant to be an uncomfortable moment. That's like a cringy kind of like, Oh shit, don't do this kid kind of moment. And people would all lean in. We're just watching chat screens, just watching the three little dots or whatever when <laughs> you see the chat coming. And I was like, oh, my God, this work, that that right. staring at the screen works. And then this is before, like, you know, unfriended movies that take place right. entirely on computer screens came out. Um, so that kind of gave me the bravery to be like, you know what, I do like this. Night. And this is a situation where I was like, I love this character a lot and I want to see more with this character. Right. So that was my notion for then deciding to do the feature. I made a few changes. Obviously, it's not Harry Potter. I didn't want to get sued. Right. So we made up our own kind of world. And we also, you know, in a feature, you have enough time to do a little bit of world building so we could create our own.
0: And it gave you an opportunity to, like, kind of put a genre film
1: within this coming-of-age film, yeah. too. You
0: got to, like, flex your muscles and right. with space aliens and things. I thought that was fun.
1: And, frankly, I didn't want it to be, like, just, like, you know, if I, you know, outside of, like, the potential law suit stuff, if I made it about Harry Potter, it would just be, like, oh, the Harry Potter parody thing. Right. Like, it would not—you would never think about the— protagonists in the way that we wanted it, they wouldn't, the focus would be in a place I wouldn't want it to be. Right.
0: Well, you, you said something that I thought was really interesting, too, about uh, using the internet as a place to kind of feel out your identity. Yeah. And it kind of occurred to me that in addition to this being a film that uh, is a coming of age story that is about not defining yourself until you're ready, it sort of feels like one of the first coming of age movies that I've seen where... Uh, it speaks to the Internet era, especially for people who are outsiders or feel other, how you can go online and find different ways to express yourself and uh, maybe find who you are or not find who you are uh, in, in, in maybe in those moments how the anonymity is a good thing as opposed to, you know, potentially bad. And I think that's really interesting uh, that it's just kind of all now like occurring to me while we're talking. I'm
1: like, how cool. Well, it's also interesting, too, because, you know, one of the problems when you're a kid, you know, before you when you're too young to drive, especially, it's like your friends are who's geographically available to you. And the odds, especially like growing up in, you know, Texas, it's like. The odds of me finding like-minded kids are, like, pretty small. So I had, like, pen pals through, like, fan clubs. Right. I was a member of multiple fan clubs, Now that was my first real piece of fandom in my life. Like, my favorite thing in the world when I was 13 years old was Elf Quest, the comic book series, and I was obsessed with it. And um, I had some pen pals. Uh, literally, like you know, through the mail. I, I I had a friend in Riverside, Iowa, and it was like, and it kind of was the inspiration for the Michael Ian Black thing that happens in the feature was my relationship with my friend in Riverside, Iowa, um, where we both didn't, you know, because you don't have that direct connection. We share something in common, a, a common love, and we have something to talk about, but you really, you know, you're just having to get to know people in a very, inorganic way right but i feel like now the internet is so sophisticated in the way you know like obviously you know there's catfish and there's all the type of stuff where people can be whoever they want to be but i think for it also i mean i'm not saying anything that is a new thought but like as much as it tears us apart it also brings us together it can be used for either end but i think in particular especially when you have like I have to imagine that if kids are into certain things or younger people are into things that they're afraid of being into because they think there's something wrong with them for being into it, like a niche, a niche within inside of a niche, like there, this is a way of showing that, no, there are other people like you. you and what you're, and it gives validity to your interests and your feelings because it doesn't make you feel like you're crazy for having an interest that feels like so far past, so far out of the mainstream you know and sometimes the interests you know if they involve your sexuality right can feel dangerous and it can make somebody feel like they're perverted or feel like a monster or you know maybe i'm being hyperbolic but like just the sheer fact that you can see that there are other people they're like no this is this is okay yeah like i you know not to be too grandiose but i feel like that could save kids you know i 100 percent agree
0: I think that that's why uh, movies like this one are important because it is a reflection of of a new generation of people being able to reach out to a world and, and find themselves in whatever way that means. Yeah. And uh, it, it is so crucial to have coming of age movies that reflect the new generation, like I grew up with John Hughes movies, but that's not the experience of kids anymore. Yeah. How how quickly would The Breakfast Club have fallen apart or come together if they had Facebook? You know, it could have been totally different. Uh, Maybe they maybe they wouldn't have talked to each other in school on Monday, but they could have had a group chat.
1: Well, it's funny because even look when people try to take older properties and try to give them that modern thing. like we were talking about Heather's the other day, the Heather's TV show, which essentially got shelved because it tried something. Definitely, I think not well thought out, but like it was like, how do we make it speak to the youth today? So it's like, you know, so that, so now the nerds have taken over the world and like right. the nerd, like I almost I half expect now to there to be a Revenge of the Nerds reboot where the jocks are the ones put upon, you know?
0: Well, I mean, I do think there is something to be said, and I say this as a nerd, but, like, you you probably have witnessed this as well, that, like, there is a—the a, internet has been a, a, a changing tide. Of course, there's the bullying of high school, but then in the world at large, it's sort of like there is there is a vicious geekdom out there that, like, makes it tricky, I think, you know, like— I every time there's a new Star Wars movie, I always think to myself, "Oh my like, god, here we go! Someone's going to be pissy about something." Like, and I'm just of the mind, death like, if,
1: threats to like Ryan Johnson's family. Like, what the
0: no, fuck? Like, there are movies that I like. there are movies that I like and there are movies that I don't, but, like, even if I hate a movie, I've never thought to myself, well, I'm just going to go online and tell everyone what assholes they're Like, it's just a waste of time. Like, let people
1: enjoy things. Well, there's, yeah, you ruined my childhood. That's my favorite one. It's like, did they get in a time machine and erase the previous films from existing and, like, beat the shadow of you and your family? Because, like, (laughs) how do you justify saying something stupid like that? That's like, you know, I feel like that fits the, uh, was it Dashiell Hammond with there was, like, this famous quote about, like, uh, they're like, hey, so you know, I know you don't like the movie adaptations. or are these dudes that piss you off and people they ruin your movie when they ruin your books. And he's like, no, my books right here on the shelf behind me. They're perfectly fine, right?
0: Well, and that's true. I mean, when uh, when I had Jeff Nelson from Scream Factory on, uh, we talked about how there is something tenuous about nostalgia. Like, of course, we all invest in it. But nostalgia is so individual that you can never please everybody because you're talking about the individual memories and the individual lives of every single person who ever watched it, that they're tying weights to something that it could never Ultimately, live up to.
1: Well, you know, if you reference everything on God's Green Earth, and then you have a runaway Netflix hit, right? Um, I have my own. Sorry, I'm not a huge fan of that certain show.
0: I guess. Well, we'll just let people fill in the blanks. Um, Shouldn't be hard. I. uh, Well, so from From your films, I do want to transition a little bit to something unrelated uh, before we head off into the night. You told me a story recently that I think is just true cult film goodness. Uh, about a road trip adventure you had with the director of liquid sky uh do yeah you care to share that story
1: so i am one of my formative films one of the ones that was like the made by aliens i couldn't imagine humans made this was liquid sky which has a brilliant blu-ray out by vinegar syndrome now uh totally worth picking up but uh, that movie is like it's the only movie set in the world of the new york fashion scene in 1980 it's like I just like if John Waters and Andy Warhol and like, uh, Versace made like a. Dr- Gall did crazy amount of drugs and then made a movie.
0: That's a night flight movie, right? That played on yeah, Night Flight yeah. I
1: think it may have. I don't remember specifically, but I I I would imagine that's a fair assumption. So I had an opportunity with the there I live in Austin. There's the Austin Film Society, uh, the fantastic organization that shows uh that supports filmmakers. Uh they with grants and all, in and workshops, but also has a theater and they show movies. And they were doing a uh series where they were asking filmmakers, um, if they wanted to show a movie that was important to them and they really wanted to be on 35 millimeter. So I chose liquid sky, but, and I was talking to my buddy who, uh, Lars, who programs there. And it's like, do you think you can track down that? And he's like, we've tried to do this before. Cause he used to work for draft house and had a massive problem, but like, I can give you some phone numbers. He hooked me up with the, um, this is before all their trouble, uh, cinema family. And cause they were the most recent ones. And that was like five years prior had shown, a copy and there was there was there was some rumor that slava zuckerman the director of liquid sky had a print in his closet like a pristine print mm-hmm. and um so i i somehow would get a hold of his cinematographer i couldn't get a hold of slava and this basically let him know i was looking for him and like we talked and i didn't think it would go anything then i get his phone call i was like on on my back porch of my house on my deck just like pulling weeds or something and like and get this call, and it's this. Slav has lived in America longer than I've been alive, and his English is still. <laughs> he's <laughs> like this Slava, uh, this Clay, and I was like, yeah, Slava, the director, look at Sky. And he's like, yes, yeah, yes. So it turns out he does have a print, and we were able to pay for him to fly out to Austin to show this thing on uh, on a Super Bowl Sunday <laughs> and we still sold out so I was like so excited that enough people fucking hate football as much as I did that they would show up but also there's no cross audience if you right. like football you're not gonna like Liquid Sky that's fair but um, afterwards my buddy the same the aforementioned Brock Epstein in Dallas he was like yeah I mean can you get him to stay longer and we'll just uh, screen it here too and you can drive him down so I did and we, we stuck around, We were able to we travel with me and him in the print, to Dallas and my little, uh, uh, Toyota Scion, <laughs> and uh, his his wife would call like every hour to make sure he was okay. And uh, you know, Slav is not young, but he also his wife is like, is he okay? Is he does he need anything? I'm like, I'm taking good care of him. Don't worry. And you know, we had a very interesting road trip. We talked a lot about Ann Carlisle, the uh, star of Liquid Sky, who apparently uh, had disappeared for very many years. And in fact, she was kind of like they they. If anybody ever saw Ann Carlisle, it was like a Bigfoot sighting. Like there was literally like some. T- talk of like a children's birthday party, like home video. And you see her pass in the background. It's like signs. Um, (laughs) But, uh, apparently she was like, she had an old and now ex-husband who's like an orthodox, uh, and, like, it was very orthodox, and, like, kept her, like, locked in a closet in Miami for, like, however many years. I'm not sure exactly. That's, I'm sure, an exaggeration. But then we do the thing in Dallas, and then we ask to do the same thing in Oklahoma. So we go to Oklahoma. So, like, I'm driving around the tri-state area in, like, this 80-year-old Russian director of Wicked Sky in my car. And then uh, my buddy Eric Hatch who used to run the Maryland Film Festival. He was like, hey, that festival festival's around on the corner. What if I fly you guys out to present it? So then we traveled to Maryland with that, and somewhere along the way, I was just like, Slava, do you want to put the movie out? And and he was like, Yes, yes, yes. And because uh, he had a pretty that prints very pristine, even though it got kind of, I don't want to talk shit, it got a little mangled in one of our screening, one of our stops had a bad projection issue. But anyway, um, so we I was originally talking my buddy Zach Carlson who wrote the great book Destroy All Movies uh, which is one of the definitive guides to punk in cinema and you should pick it up if you can find it fan Graphics. Um, Zach had a he worked for Draft House at the time and he had a, he had a, 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 a non-discretionary like he could do one release per year that is just whatever you want to do and we talked about doing Liquid Sky and he was like very on board Slava's dragging his feet and whatever and then Zach left and that kind of started to fall apart but I guess all the work had kind of been put into place so it was easy then and I don't want to, maybe it was very hard for him, I don't want to belittle whatever work they did to to accomplish this but Vinegar Syndrome was able to then, I wish I actually I don't actually know the story how they specifically got involved but it makes sense, I mean the feelers were out there, we knew the print existed there's all this other archival material Anne's back, she's to do interviews uh and, yeah, in fact, actually, you can see my my intro and Q&A from the uh, Austin original screening is on the Blu-ray. I um, But anyway, yeah, um, so that's how it came together. And at some point during the proceedings, Slavi was even like, talking, started talking about Liquid Sky 2. They They're going to make Liquid Sky 2 and asked me if I want to produce it. And of course, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, OK. He started telling me, he's like, no, no, LSD scene will be in 3D. Alien <laughs> effect in 3D. <laughs> and I was like, "That's that is a thing." Yes, we could make that. Out. But yeah, I don't know where the status is. I should probably reach out to Slav, Slav, if you're listening,
0: Liquid I hope Sky, is. too,
1: <laughs> my friend. Uh But no, it was it was we were definitely it was our it was our you know our bizarre uh, Melvin and Howard uh, road trip.
0: I love that. I love that this film that was truly one of the the late night. Classics, like we talked at the beginning or earlier in the conversation about the the films that you find and there's something forbidden about it and amazing. And Liquid Sky is one of those late night discoveries. And the fact that you were able to basically drive the film to its Blu-ray restoration by
1: this impromptu road trip is amazing. It 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 was it was a great yeah it was a great excursion. I just I I mean. I, I would never. I've had that happen a couple of times in my life, where I ended up being teamed up with people who are hugely informative to me, and then being asked to produce movies for them. Or I had the same thing happen with Nick Zed. We were both in uh, this small town outside of Amsterdam called Breda. We were both jurors on a film festival with a Butt Film Festival. It's a great. It stands for B Movies Underground and Trash, not buttocks. Right. But um, well, the, we're
0: fine with it either way. But honestly. the B.U.T. Film
1: Festival is amazing. It's in Breda. It's like you take a train an hour outside of Amsterdam. They have like a zombie. They like really basically innovated the idea of the zombie walk. All right. Festivals. Uh, but yeah, it's like they I've seen things that you'll never see elsewhere. We were talking about this crazy German filmmaker, Marion Dora, who makes this like insanely like borderline snuff movies. And, like there's no you'll ever see a Marion Dora film outside of there. I met Fred, Fred Vogel there. Oh, Fred Vogel um, of uh, TOTAG Pictures. A friend of mine from
0: Pittsburgh. Have you all had him on the show? Not yet. Well, Fred's. Uh, we only have guests who, when they're in town. So uh, if Fred
1: ever makes it to L.A., um, he would love to have him. Uh, Fred and Shelby. Like I, I love those guys. They're 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 awesome.
0: Uh, Shelby. Uh, it, uh, when uh, I first met them, I met them at Cinema Wasteland in Cleveland years ago and I had told Shelby that I was going to go upstairs and take a disco nap and she was so amused by that phrase, she hadn't heard it before. <laughs> and so for that weekend, uh, she would just like everything, she's like, I'm going to go get some disco coffee and I'm going to go. So uh, whenever I think of Shelby, the word disco pops
1: into my brain, uh, probably in a way that she wa- she uh, now would regret. <laughs> Did have another funny moment. So, they, so we were staying in. So, Paul and Dorian, they're the, they're the husband wife team that run the, the Butt Film Festival. And so we were in their houses in Amsterdam and we'd stay there. And, uh, so Fred and Shelby and the, I can't, remember what's the name of the third person that's part of Totag? I'm oh, like, Jeremy I'm Cruz. Jeremy, they're all yep. downstairs and we're up, upstairs in like the attic. And I was like, I one, one night. I just <laughs> turned to Brock in the middle of the night and I was like, Brock, we're two Jews in an attic in Amsterdam. No, and we both just start laughing. <laughs> <laughs> oh
0: my! Uh, so from slash and, and uh, road trips with heroes to Amsterdam to all of these amazing things that you've done, these companies you've worked for, you just keep carving different paths uh, and, and and breaking new ground in, in your career. Uh,
1: what's next? I have several what's next is I've been working on several projects. I'm uh, I'm currently adapting a book uh, that I can't mention yet, but it's definitely something that anyone in fandom has heard of and would hopefully be very excited to see this thing adapted. It's a, it's a crazy true life story. I will be able to talk about it more in the future, but I will say you can take the, if you, this is my cryptic way of giving a hint you can if you take the most boiled down log line of slash it would be the same log line for this uh, kids coming of age through obsessive fandom
0: interesting
1: that's just, i'm probably said too much now um i also have like i'm trying to get back into horror a little bit and i've been i have a couple of adaptations i'm working on that i'm really or are, are some original stories uh and then i'm trying i'm tr- basically writing a bizarre I like to think it it's a horror film retelling with monsters of the Count of Monte Cristo, um, which is something I'm very excited about. And I also am uh, working on a couple more TV pitches. And above that. Uh, I have a spin off of Slash that's just got hooked up with a Canadian company that we're going into that will be producing it. And this uh, spin off of Slash, I like to call it the uh, it's Frasier to Slash's Cheers because it's about some side characters that are literally in Slash for like two minutes, but it's about their side quest. Um, I love and it's that. Uh, called the Texas High School Regional Theater Festival Murders. Um,
0: that tells you exactly what it is? tells you
1: exactly what it is. Um, it is intrigue and and bad choices made within the world of high school theater and UIL. I don't know if they have UIL here. It's like the national competition or the regional competitions for theater f- for high school theater. Oh, I didn't even know that was a thing. Yeah, in, in Texas it's called UIL. Um,
0: Apparently, my high school theater productions never rated. Uh, <laughs> Uh, well, thank you so much for coming on the show yeah, today. Uh, thank you. Where can people find you?
1: Uh, I am on Twitter and Facebook. I'm at Clay Life L-I-F-O-R-D on, on Twitter. Uh, also, all my movies are on Amazon and iTunes. Um, we would love it if you saw watch. If you have Amazon Prime, you can watch Slash for free. Yeah. On Amazon Prime, we would love it because... That helps out everyone. And it's free yeah. if you have a membership. Also, on my personal Vimeo, I released recently released the original slash short for free. Oh, excellent. Um, you can typically track it by just finding my I'm I'm on Facebook. I, I'm old. I technically have an Instagram, but, but like most old people, I don't use it very well. <laughs> um, but like, yeah, so I I Twitter's where I live the most. At Clay Life and it also, you know, you can also look. Like, we have Slash the Movie as well. Like, slash the Movie is the website for Slash. It's also our Twitter handle. It's also our Facebook. Slash the Movie, no spaces, is like that's the that's the place to go. For all slash-related hoot nannies.
0: Well, Clay, I'm so glad you made uh, Dead for Filth one of your stops while you were here in town. Me too. It's a uh, it's a joy to have you here. Please, listeners, go check out Clay. Uh, follow him online. Watch all of his movies. Like he said, free is good. That's always a good yeah. thing. Yeah. Slash and Wuss and all the other ones, and uh, just uh, keep your eyes on this amazing filmmaker and what he's got next. Thank you. Thank you. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Verratti, yours always in glam and gore. Good night, and good luck.